Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. And so our reading is from Zephaniah, chapter 2, reading through into the first eight verses of chapter 3. And that can be found on page 945, 945. Gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect and that day passes like the wind-blown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron uprooted. Woe to you who live by the sea, you Kerethite people. The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. He says, I will destroy you and none will be left. The land by the sea will become pastures, having wells for shepherds and sheepfolds for flocks. That land will belong to the remnant of the people of Judah. There they will find pasture. In the evening they will lie down in the houses of Ashkelon. The Lord their God will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. I have heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of the Ammonites, who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The survivors of my nation will inherit their land. This is what they will get in return for their pride for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the earth. Distant nations will bow down to him, all of them in their own lands. You Cushites too will be slain by my sword. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. Flocks and herds will lie down there, creatures of every kind. The desert owl and the screech owl will roost on her columns. Their hooting will echo through the windows. Rubble will fill the doorways and beams of cedar will be exposed. This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one and there is none beside me. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. 
All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one, she accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They are treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice. And every new day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. I have destroyed nations, their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets deserted, with no one passing through. Their cities are laid waste, they are deserted and empty. Of Jerusalem I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction? Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Claire. That was not an easy reading. Second week in a row that we've um, got a really difficult reading. Um, page 945, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, brilliant. Sorry, I need to get it open as well. I don't know, have you found it slightly easier to find it in your Bibles this week after last week? I've um, just about worked out where it is. Um, but it's a hard passage, again, hard to hear, hard to speak. Thank you, Claire, for reading it. And did you notice that as chapter 1 ended in 118, so also ends today's section in 3.8, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Wow. I guess this is a picture, isn't it, of God like a loving but jilted spouse, rightly jealous. Because by turning to false gods, as we heard last week, by turning away from our true creator, we've chosen and rightly deserve decreation. God warns that he will give us what we want. If we creatures don't want the creator of light and life and all blessings, then we will get curse, chaos, and eternal darkness. And it's tragic. Last week was a hard, hard read. And this week is not easier. Now, someone's relative was visiting last week, and apparently they said, that was a hard listen. I must make sure I tune in for the third and final sermon. <laughs> Great decision. And I almost wish I could have skipped today's second sermon too. Unfortunately, the snow didn't stop me from coming. I only lived two minutes down the road. Otherwise, we could have listened to one of Pete's sermons warmed up in the microwave or something. But, 
But you know, today's passage does start to give us some glimmers of hope. Glimmers, again, that trail that stunning grace revealed at the first coming of Christ that we're going to hear about next week that will hopefully have us singing with joy. But again, the doctor must offer and the patient must hear the frightening and fatal diagnosis. Nobody enjoys it, doctor or patient. But it must be done before the doctor can offer and the patient really be amazed at the medicine on offer that can cure the disease. And I want to say as well, Zephaniah isn't just repeating his point about idolatry from last week. Actually, he moves on this week to talk about another aspect of sin. Pride. Pride. That's the big focus this week. I wonder, is that something that might be relevant to you? Do you have a pride problem? What do you think? Benjamin Franklin, the scientist and founding father of the USA, said this about pride. He said, even if I had completely overcome pride, I should probably feel quite proud of my humility. An inescapable, fundamental part of the human condition. But, you know, you don't have to take Franklin's word for it. I I think Zephaniah and I think the Lord who gave him this prophecy to preach, both of them think that if you are a member of the human race, whatever your nationality, then by definition you have a pride problem. Is that too strong? Look at God's command to the nation of Judah in verses two to three. Verse two. Before the decree takes effect and that day passes like windblown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Did did you notice, even the humble of the land need to be told, seek humility. Because even the humble can become proud and have to battle pride. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Our first big point this morning then, please, Jordan. Humble yourself before God today to be saved, to be saved on the coming day, the day of judgment. Now, I want to say, first of all, this is a message of hope because we're being told there is a way to be saved. Seek your God in humility. It's Zephaniah's urgent message to Judah because time was running out before the day of the Babylonian invasion, just 50 years to go until the Babylonians came in, crashing in and bringing Judah to her knees. And we're going to see that that's a message for all the nations because the Babylonian invasion affected the whole of the ancient world. But of course it is also a message to us who await the great and final day when Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead as we believe, as we say in our creeds. So, after his call to humility to Judah, Zephaniah turns now to the Philistines in verses 4 to 7. Look at verse 5. Woe to you who live by the sea, you Kerethite people. That's an alternative word for the Philistines um, that references their Cretan ancestry. The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. He says, I will destroy you and none will be left. 
Look where Philistia is on the map. They're the western neighbors of Judah. You can see some of the main cities there and in verse 4, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron. And then in verses 8 to 10, he turns to Judah's western neighbors, the other side of the compass, Moab and Ammon, uh, the big W on the big map that we're about to see. Uh, Sorry, I'm so um, directionally challenged. The big E on the the map, he turns the east to Moab and Ammon. It's it's caused no end of arguments in the car with Amy as she's trying to give me directions. Anyway, verse 8, I've heard the insults of Moab on the taunts of the Ammonites who insulted my people and made threats against their land. End of verse 9, Moab and Ammon will become a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. Judgment is coming. We then look to the south in verse 12, the Far south, just beyond Egypt on the map, Cush, Monday, Ethiopia. And then verse 13 to the north. Look at verse 13. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate, Nineveh the capital city. And as we look at God's judgment in these four directions, every point of the compass, did you notice why God is judging? He only says it in two of the cases but it's the only thing he ever says about why so it's the reason for all this judgment verse 10 verse 10 this is what Moab and Ammon will get in return for did you see their pride for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty now um, I'm not going to ask if we have anybody from Scotland or Wales in the house, um, but Moab and Ammon were a bit like Scotland and Wales to our England. I'm half Welsh, so I sort of understand it from both perspectives. But Moab and Ammon were the smaller neighbours, and they hated it, the small, being the smaller neighbours of Judah and Israel. They'd fought wars with Israel and usually lost and had become, well, vassal states under the crown, the rule of Judah and Israel forced to pay tax and tribute. And so when northern Israel had been crushed a hundred years before Zephaniah's prophecy, the Moabites and Ammonites were whooping. Verse 10, they were mocking. (laughs) Ha ha ha, look at you. Not so high and mighty anymore. And did you notice verse 10 that God says that attitude to their bigger neighbor is pride. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Does that surprise you? Assyria's pride is easier to see. Assyria are the guys in the north there who rule over everything in green. They have the biggest empire of their day. And verse 15, this is the city of revelry, their capital Nineveh, that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one. There's none besides me. But what a ruin she has become. What does that mean? I am the one and there's none besides me. Are they just saying they're the greatest city on earth, maybe? Well, yeah, possibly. Rule Britannia. Britannia rules the waves. I wonder how Londoners felt when the sun never set on the British Empire. Wow, London. It's the center of the world. We're the one. So then we see two kinds of pride. Pride from above. Assyria looking down on others, thinking they're so much greater. But also pride from below comparing yourself to others and feeling you're less than them and hating them for it. But both are a form of pride. Have you ever noticed that insecurity and arrogance 
go hand in hand? Have you ever noticed that? Don't notice that. Notice this, what I'm saying. Have you ever noticed that? It's interesting, isn't it? The heart of pride then is, is when I make everything revolve around me. That's why the proud person is constantly comparing themselves to others. Sometimes they measure up favorably, producing arrogance, and other times they don't, producing self-hatred and hatred of others. You see, the opposite of pride is not thinking of yourself as lesser than other people, but just thinking about yourself less. Full stop. Self-forgetfulness that comes from being so bowled over by how great God is. you just got less time to think about yourself. True worship leads to humility. And the heart of pride is when it's all about me, even though I'm not God. Look at Nineveh's words again. I am, and there is no other besides me. Do you know, I think the plan still is to study Isaiah next term. Pete, I'm looking at you for help here, yes. And we're going to get to Isaiah 45, and we're going to hear God say those words, because those are divine words. I am, says God, and there's no other besides me. I am the one true God. Worship me. You see, Assyria, and in fact everybody else, we all suffer from a God complex. I wonder if you see then how this builds on last week. If you were here last week, maybe you're asking, hold on, hold on, I thought idolatry was the big sin of the world, making false gods. 1 verse 3, it's the idols that make the nations stumble, isn't it? Well, yeah, but pride and idolatry are conjoined twins. They always come together. I mean, what could be more proud than daring to say to your maker, do you know, I don't like who you are. I'm going to make another god to my liking. The mix and match religion we saw last week and that we're all prone to that maybe accepts aspects of who the true God says he is but then dilutes him or pollutes him with aspects from our culture or other religions that we find more palatable. That impulse not to let your creator simply be who he is and listen to him. What, what could be prouder than that? A creature thinking he can remake his creator. There's always been this uh, symbiotic relationship between idolatry and pride. And you know, the little gods that we make for ourselves actually make room for our pride as well. I I did all right at school, then at university, then in my second university. And I worshipped academia. Do you know why? Because I got the best possible grades and it made me feel so good about myself. It made me think I'm better than other people. But I was so deeply insecure the whole time. Because there was always someone who did slightly better. And I hated them. And I hated myself. We worship whatever makes us feel like God And we do damage to ourselves through it. Verse 11, though, God will not let that go on. Verse 11, 
the Lord will reassert himself in all his glory. He will, verse 11, be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the earth, the false ones. Distant nations will bow down to him, all of them in their own lands. Al, stay with me again. He really is falling asleep, so I need to give him a nudge. God reasserting his right to be worship, worshipped. It can seem egotistical, can't it? But can I say, I think that's actually just pride clouding our vision. And actually reinstating God as the one we worship, as the center of our lives, that is the path to true freedom. Have you ever read C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters? You really, if you want to think more about pride, it is the place to go. It's breathtaking. Anyway, in his preface, he has this chilling phrase for godless pride. The ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self, which is the mark of hell. Pride is a terrible condition, he says. But then rather beautifully, in mere Christianity, Lewis then sums up how beautiful and winsome real humility is as well. Listen to this. Don't imagine that if you meet a really humble person that he'll be what most people call humble nowadays. He won't be smarmy. He won't always be saying, oh, of course, I'm nobody. No, probably all that you will think about him when you meet him is that he is cheerful, intelligent. He took a real interest in what you said to him. And if you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anybody who seems to enjoy life so easily. He won't be thinking about humility. He won't be thinking about himself at all because he will be thinking about his maker. And how wonderful it is to be made in God's image. He won't need to prove himself to you or anybody else. He won't feel undermined by you or any, because he gets his dignity from knowing his maker and knowing he's made in his image. And he loves you and wants to know you because you're made in God's image, so you're interesting to him. That's humility. Isn't it beautiful? But don't mishear me. I'm not just saying that we need to do away with pride because it's better for our mental health or our relationships, though it is. I'm saying that the central message of Zephaniah is that God hates pride so much that, well, he will judge those who stay proud. Our eternal salvation depends on this. But boy is admitting that you have a pride problem hard to do precisely because, well, we are proud. And it's hard for proud people to admit that they've got a problem. As Judah looked around, they might have thought, oh, you know, at least we aren't as bad as Philistia there. After all, 2 verse 7 suggests we're going to get their lands when they're judged. Verse 7 of chapter 2, that land will belong to the remnant of the people of Judah. Same is true of Moab's lands. End of 2 verse 9, the survivors of my nation will inherit their land, says God about Judah. Oh, and as for Assyria, as Judah looked at them, they think they're God. How bad is that? And I know we've got an idol problem, but at least we'd never say, I am the one. Can I say, if you're a Christian today, are you ever tempted to look around and make these kinds of flattering comparisons that make you feel, oh, yeah, well, yeah I am sinful, but at least I'm not as sinful as them out there, northeast, south, or west. Well, the next point you 
you humble yourself, expecting God to judge all nations, even you. 3, 1, verse, uh, three one to 8 now calls Judah up short. It, it says to us, stop looking around at your neighbors and focus in on yourself. When God says the whole world, he means you as well. But at first, did you notice, it seems as though God in 3 verse 1 is actually still talking about Nineveh. 3 verse 1, the city of oppressors. Surely that in Zephaniah's day was Nineveh, the the all-powerful city that ruled over everybody and oppressed everybody. But as we read on, it becomes clear actually that this is Jerusalem. The NIV translators have entirely given the game away in verse 7 by naming Jerusalem. But the name's not there in the original It's not that they're wrong, it is Jerusalem, but it only becomes clear gradually from some of the details. Verse 4, the middle of verse 4, the words for priest and sanctuary are used in the Bible exclusively of Jewish priests and the temple in Jerusalem. The word law at the end of verse 4 is also a Hebrew word, Torah, used exclusively for Israel's law. The five books of Moses given to Israel by God in the desert the very books, of course, that they, if you were here last week, you might remember, had lost in the temple and were just gathering dust. I guess Zephaniah wanted to let it dawn on Judah slowly that they were just as bad as anybody else. Why? Why do it that way? Well, have you, can I ask, have you ever tried to tell a proud person their faults? Weren't you just met with defense and denial? If you've never experienced that, come and tell me my faults. And I'll give you a good demonstration. Zephaniah doesn't want to just drop the bomb on them. He wants to get under their skin to expose them bit by bit, peel back the layers so they can really see what they're like. Um, Can I say, it's very hard, isn't it, for us to accept what we're really like? It's very hard for any nation to do that as we look at the Israel-Gaza conflict again. Striking, isn't it, that it's probably wrong on every side because that's just the nature of all human conflict and yet the, the black and white narratives? And I'm not saying it's necessarily a 50-50. Not all human conflicts are 50-50. Sometimes somebody takes the lion's share of the blame. But my point is just that pride stops us even asking What is my share of the blame? And really coming to terms with it. You know, as we look at all the nations at war around the world, what we should do is look then at ourselves. Focus in on yourself. What are are we like as a nation? I was struck this week by the allegations of British soldiers committing extrajudicial killings in Afghanistan. If that's not playing God with somebody's life, I, I don't know what is. Oh yeah, Britons, we can have a God complex too. In Zephaniah's day, Judah, the nation of Judah needed to face up to herself and stop comparing with others. And she ought to have known better. But verse 2, she obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. This is the final aspect of pride in the passage. Unteachability. Nobody can tell me what's right and wrong. You can't correct me. 
And notice the sign of an unteachable culture is the arrogance and abusiveness of its leaders and teachers, interestingly. In verse 3, her officials and rulers are roaring lions and ravenous wolves, cruel, domineering, abusive. Verse 4, her religious teachers, prophets, priests, they violate God's teaching, the Torah, instead of teaching it. And this kind of leadership, this is the really chilling thing, this kind of leadership seems to suit them because they themselves don't want to be taught. But even with such leaders, God has not stopped teaching his people. He is just, verse 5. And verse 6, he has given them lessons written large in history before them for them to learn from. I have destroyed nations, he says, verse 6. Their strongholds are demolished. I've left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are laid waste. They're deserted and empty. Do you remember... Before Israel's eyes, he judged Egypt for their idolatry and cruelty. Before Israel's eyes, he judged the Canaanites for their idolatry and their evil. Before Israel's eyes, he judged northern Israel for their idolatry and oppression. And verse 7, see what God was doing this all for? Verse 7 of Jerusalem, I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. You'll get the message. But, end of the verse, they were still eager to act corruptly and all they did. It's amazing how unteachable we are. You know, this is me. I want to say this is my problem. Every time I come to church to listen to a sermon, every time I prep a sermon, I battle with pride and think, I've got nothing to learn from this. Be it Pete, Johnny or Matt or Andy, it doesn't matter. Be in a conversation with you. I've got nothing to learn from you. I'm your teacher. What, what do I have to learn from you? But what do I have to learn? I violate God's law all the time. I'm not a perfect person by any stretch of the... I've got so much to learn from all our teachers and from all of you. What is wrong with me? I'm proud. I wonder are you... Look, if your answer is no, I'm I'm not actually, then actually I don't know what's left to say. But maybe I could at least say this. Please suspend judgment. And grant me that just perhaps the reason you can't see your pride is because of pride. Take another look at yourself, please. Because do you see what hangs on this? 3 verse 8, 1 verse 18. The whole world will be consumed by fire. God hates pride, and shouldn't he? Isn't it ugly? Doesn't it wreck everything? And he won't tolerate it forever. Fire actually frames this second section. In 2 verse 1, the word for gather, kush, is a word that only comes up in the Bible three, in three passages apart from here. And then there's other three passages. It's a word used only for gathering firewood, not people. It's a weird word to use for gathering people. And it's an ominous word to use for gathering people in the light of the coming fire. The warning is sobering. Notice as well, it's actually a word that sounds very like, um, well, the nation of Cush. If you looked in 1 verse 1, you'd see that actually Zephaniah himself is from a place called Cush, the one we looked at earlier. In verse 
12 it is, isn't it? He just mentions Cush as being subject to judgment as well. That is an act of humility from him. He's saying, look, my nation too, we are subject to this fire. I'm part of the problem, says Zephaniah. Don't think he's preaching from above. But also to verse 3, if only you will get this, then you will be saved. You will be saved. He says perhaps there, but I want to say there is no perhaps anymore. It's you will be saved now. 1 John 1 verse 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. The perhaps is gone. God's not proud like we are. He doesn't nurse grudges. And the moment you hold up your hands and say, oh yeah, I, I do see, I do see I'm proud. He says, forgiven, forgiven. But John reminds us either side of this verse that we find it very hard as proud people to face up to ourselves. And so 1 verse 8, he says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. And verse 10, if we claim we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar. Can I say, there is nothing prouder than this. Telling your God that he's lying. Who's telling the truth? Let's pray. Father, you tell us that we do have a pride problem and we struggle to hear that truth. But Father, we want to hear it because we see how beautiful life can be without it and we want to be saved. Please open up our eyes to what we're really like. Help us to see ourselves and seek you in true humility. Make us teachable, we pray. For Jesus' sake and for our eternal good. Amen.